This copyrighted podcast is presented by the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council. The opinions and views shared by those of non-paid guests on the business of blueberries are those of our guests and do not represent the views, positions, or policies of the USHBC. The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the management, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Welcome back to another episode of the Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. Now, one personal benefit of doing this weekly podcast for me is that I get to sit down with people who have been in this industry for some many years, and in many cases, decades, and, and then just to listen and understand all that has gone into what we've seen built over as many years and to listen to their experiences and to better understand what led our industry to where it is today. It is just such a benefit to keep this perspective in mind as we look forward to the future of blueberries. And we have one of those blueberry pioneers on the show today. The guy who really brought commercial blueberry production to Australia years ago, then developed some of the genetics that are now used around the world. I'm very pleased to be joined by a name many of you will recognize, Ridley Bell. Ridley? Thanks so much for joining me on the business of blueberries. Thanks, Casey. After all these months and years of listening to the podcast, I finally get a gig. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's funny you say years. I, I, if, if people are under the impression we've been doing this for a long time, I think the pandemic has really spoken. We are fortunate to have this platform, fortunate to have you on the show, and you know, fortunate to have the audience that we've gained over all these many months had we not been in these circumstances, Ridley, we'd see you in our meetings and, and you'd be able to be participating like you have. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've heard so much about you. I'm just excited to have you join us. So welcome. Thank you. Well, I'm excited also to hear you know from you more about your experiences with the blueberry production and genetics over the years. But to start with some context, you were working in a research center in 1970s and then decided to kind of uproot and start a blueberry farm. Maybe you could just Start there. Tell me about that. Well, go back a little bit further back, Casey. I was I was brought up in an outer industrial suburb of Melbourne, but my mother used to send me out with a a, a tin to pick blackberries because they were wild where we were, and she'd give me a, a few cents for a bucket of blackberries. Uh, and I had a love for the outdoors and wanted to be a farmer myself. And so I took myself off to an ag college and then after I finished there, ended up in the army for a couple of years and then went on to university and, and got a degree and um, ended up working in a research station, the Horticultural Research Institute at Knoxfield. And my job there was to look at a few fruit crops, but the one that I passionately loved right from day one was blueberries. And um, I was given 3,000 seedlings at Nobody really had any idea about someone had just brought in some seeds from uh, Michigan University. So that was where I started in 1975, just walking these seedlings. And um, I fell in love with blueberries. And probably, Casey, one of the things that um, I was naive enough in those days to believe that flavour was the most important thing. And uh, I've met many people, and sadly, some of the breeders who say, no, Ridley, Flavor is not the most important. Yields are the most important thing. But um, I was lucky that for me, the passion became 
breeding blueberries with flavour. Why did I leave a research institute? Well, I really wanted to be a farmer. And early in those days, I realised that the place to grow blueberries wasn't in the cold climate areas in Australia, but was in the warm climate areas. So I packed up and to northern New South Wales and established a little blueberry farm up there and kept on with the importing and um, breeding of the, the new varieties. I've only seen photos that have been shared with me on what Blue Mountain Farms looks like today. Maybe you can just describe your operation today uh, from your perspective. Well, today we, we say that we are a four pillars company and that we have a genetics company, Mountain Blue Orchards is our genetics company and uh, where we breed blueberries, but we're also breeding blackberries now in conjunction with Dr. John Clark. We have a uh, nursery that produces over half a million blueberry plants a year. We also have farms, 300 acres of blueberries, all our own varieties. And then when my son came back to the business at the age of 34, after a legal um, career in mining, he came back and he said, Dad, we should be marketing our own blueberries, he said, because we're, uh, we're paying a fortune out to marketing companies and we can do it better. So he established a um, marketing company, Mountain Blue Marketing. Within five years, I think they're second only to Driscoll's in Australia now in terms of turnover in berries. That's the scope of our business, those four pillars. Yeah. You know, as we go into this here, there's certainly plenty of things for us to continue to cover and distill the insights over 40 years into one podcast episode. But before we take that deep dive, let's take a break for our crop report. We're still early in our domestic season, but there's already quite a bit to discuss. So here, once again, is your blueberry crop report. It's time now for your blueberry crop report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry growing areas. Today, you'll hear from Juan Soria in Mexico, Bill Steed in California, and Eric Staffney in Mississippi. This was recorded on May 12th, 2021. Good morning. Uh, this is Juan Soria from Aneveris. Uh, we are going to share the information regarding the uh, export volumes from Mexico for week 18. Uh, this week, as uh, we began the month of May, we are seeing a decrease in the volume exports. We are uh, just 1 million pounds below compared with the last week. That is around 15% of the volume uh, that we saw last week. From now on, uh, we are going to see this decrease until the end of May when we are going to be almost done with the export season. The export uh, volume for this week, uh, we exported 7 million pounds to all over the world. The season for Mexico has been just great. We are just having very good numbers. We have exported a lot, around 120 million pounds. That's it. Thank you. This is Bill Steed from California reporting the crop call. Weather has been outstanding. Crop is uh, moving along very nicely. Virtually all areas of California are in harvest. Volumes, as projected earlier, of 88 million remain the same. Uh, organic being in the 30 million plus range and conventional in the 45 plus range and the balance being process projected. Uh, no disease, labor doesn't seem to be an issue. And uh, we're off to a good start. This is Eric Staffney, uh, Mississippi State University. I'm reporting for Mississippi and Louisiana. Uh, the weather this spring has been rainy and uh, significant uh, excess rain in some uh, areas. 
and we're expecting more rain in the next couple of weeks. Uh, conditions have impacted southern highbush harvest and slowed it down considerably. Crop volumes will be affected by this rainy weather as well as the earlier freeze events we had in the winter. Uh, some growers reporting light crops and the rabbit eye harvest is going to be delayed as well. Typically it's May 15th or so and now it's going to be around May 25th for any measurable volumes. It also appears that early rabbit eye varieties are late and coming in with mid-season varieties. Early rabbit eye varieties have variable crop loads, some average and some poor, but later rabbit eye varieties look pretty good. And that's my report. Well, thanks so much to our busy growers who take the time to participate in these reports. As a reminder, you can also go to the new USHBC website where you'll find our data and insight center to see more data of what's happening in the blueberry industry. We've made that snapshot view of USDA data on production and price online resource to everyone to access easily and quickly. So make sure you visit ushbc.org slash data to check that out. Okay. Back to you, Ridley. Let's uh, start off here talking about your genetics program. How did that get started? Maybe you could just kind of give us a, a sense of, of that transition before it became the largesse that it's become today. I guess it started in the days when there, there weren't private breeding programs that, that tied everything up. And I know there's still friends of mine in the industry over there that say to me they wish it was still the old days where everybody shared the material and all the rest of it. And um, I was part of that in the uh, 80s and early 90s. In 1992, I went with the um, farm manager of Blueberry Farms of Australia and we visited Florida University and spent some time with uh, Dr. Paul Irene, who we'd met a few times before, but we entered into a joint breeding program with the University of Florida and, and the funds that came from Australia helped to keep that program alive, I might say. And we would import 30 packets of seeds each year and the best 10 selections from their program in Florida. From those, um, those seeds, we would raise about seven to 10,000 seedlings every year and uh, walk the seed seedlings and um, put ribbons out. And Paul would come over every now and then and um, spend some time with us. So we became good friends with Dr. Paul Irene. And from the selections that we brought in, nothing ever really took off as being a, um, a great variety for us. And because we're a different country, but from those seedlings, we we're able to select seedlings and then make crosses and develop our own um, varieties in Australia. And you've probably heard of our Eureka variety, which has become widely grown in about 25 countries around the world. But that came from us using different sources to get that crunch. And whilst I'm still a, a great advocate of flavour, I've also come to realise how important crunch is. And I don't follow raspberries or blackberries or strawberries as my comparison. I look at grapes. And I, as I watch the grape industry evolve, I'm sort of using that as a uh, yardstick to try and follow where they're going because I think they've been incredibly successful. And, you know, we measure them on our Durafel meter to uh, look at the crunch factor. So we've been trying to emulate that with our blueberry breeding to bring both crunch and uh, flavour into, into good blueberries. Well, and, and knowing that you, you, you were saying earlier that you're, you're – primary focus from the very beginning was flavor. You know, how much work is there that is different trying to drive that other characteristic 
And to the extent that the crunch wasn't quite the priority it's become for you in the past, you know, how much, I guess, sacrifice is there on going after a flavor profile versus a crunch profile? I think we've kept the two in balance. I've never, never, ever uh, veered away from the fact that flavor is number one. And then the crunch comes, the size of the fruit, because, you know, there's a premium to be paid on um, jumbo fruit these days, uh, particularly in places like China where, you know, we work with Driscoll's in China and they get a 50% premium on uh, jumbo fruit. So there's great benefit in in uh, looking for that as well. The other thing about that, of course, is that we're looking at, at varieties that are larger, easier to pick. And so instead of being able to pick five kilos an hour, a good picker can pick 15 to 20 kilos an hour. And also one of the objects of our breeding program today is to breed for machine harvesting. Yeah, well, and it's interesting because we're going to move into a fall meeting series where we bring the tech symposium forward. And you're absolutely right. I mean, some of our best podcasts are on tech. And in particular, we've had a couple of good episodes on harvesters and just being able to achieve that balance with the horticulture needs of growers of that flavor profile, that crunch. And then how do you bring that to market in a way that's cost effective for growers? How, how have you seen those things being you know, brought together for grower success? Well, it's a very important point, Casey. And, you know, I've spent time with Fumi Takata and with the guys at Finefield in Holland, um, and we've been trialling their easy harvesters now. We've seen the problem with the -the over-the-row machine harvesters. They do a great job if if you're machine harvesting for process or if you're picking today, packing tonight, and it's in the shop tomorrow. But we don't have that luxury and our you know our export market requires us to have fruit on the water for you know 21 days, which is the same for Peru, for Chile, for Argentina. So you've got to look at harvesting uh, processes that allow for the fruit to not suffer internal damage. So we look at the density of the fruit. Uh, we do trials on um, MA storage and we look at the skin thickness to look at ways that we can have a blueberry that is um, very, very crunchy, eats well, tastes good, but can be taken off with a machine. And that's the track that we're really pushing down now. And we're doing very targeted crosses now, Casey, that are going down that track to to meet those requirements. It sounds to me like there's a lot of room for future improvement in global blueberry genetics, just in what you're describing there as the industry evolves, you know, what room do you see uh, in the future of improving global blueberry genetics? Yeah, um, that's a good question because Driscoll's, for instance, are uh, looking at, um, you know, the chemical composition and looking at um, flavor markers and all the rest. I'm probably still a little old-fashioned that I like to put half a dozen punnets out of our top selections and get a whole range of people from Asia, from European descent, from you know Indigenous people, and put them out there, give them a sheet, and let them mark off the uh, characteristics that they like, and then come up with it. At the end of the day, that works really well, and often you'll get pretty good consensus. But the other thing, Casey, and and don't forget this, this is really important. I've got grandkids and they go to punnets in my fridge 
They know the ones they like. And it's really important because children are one of our big markets. So I watch what ones my grandkids like and I say, ah, that's a flavour that uh, is going to be important for us. So don't ever get away from the humanness of this. We can do all the, uh, you know, you can titrate all the chemicals you like in a lab, but at the end of the day, it's going to be the kids saying to mum, mum, have you got the, you know, have you got a part of the blueberries? And that's where the growth is going to be. And if we get the kids, my grandkids are hooked on blueberries. They love them. They're the market of the future, you know. I remember it was in about 1996 and I was with one of the biggest growers there. I won't name him. He was a good friend. We were tasting blueberries and they were all really acid and, and everything. And I said to him, mate, I said, you need to go look at your flavour profile. And he said, no, people don't eat blueberries. They only use them in pies. And I said, the reason they don't eat blueberries, I remember saying this, the reason they don't eat blueberries is because you give them such awful blueberries to eat. I said, if you want people to eat blueberries fresh, you've got to give them something that they want to eat. So my answer to the question of moving forward is that we have to, as an industry, move more and more towards a good eating experience. You know, it's as simple as that. We can bring in all sorts of marketing tricks and all the rest of it. At the end of the day, it's going to be my grandkids and your kids. They're going to grab a punnet of blueberries out of the fridge and put it in their lunchbox, and they're going to drive the industry because they are the consumers, you know. So I don't think there's any shortcuts to this apart from the blueberry growers getting on board and saying, look, we got an issue here. Let's start modernising and, and stop trying to sell bad things. I think that's a kind of a universal call to action for what I've heard discussed time and time again in all the circles that I end up finding myself meeting in is just how important it is that USHBC, but obviously doing this work on behalf of the industry continues to make accessible the variety types that have been created that provide those flavor profiles that continue to perpetuate the good eating experience that are the consumers. So maybe we could just strike a point there about the private breeding programs versus the history of public institutions that have been both responsible for where we're at today. And I, I think it'd be great for our audience to hear your thoughts on the challenges that growers face in looking at these proprietary private breeding programs versus the ability to access the qualities and characteristics that you, you recognize consumers are looking for. Yeah, look, I've been involved in both the public breeding programs and the sentimental side of me says that they were good days. And, you know, I've had many conversations with my mentor over there, uh, Professor Mike Mainland, who's been a, a wonderful mentor for over 40 years. Mike would dearly love to um, take some of our uh, genetics from our private program and put it into uh, with the growers in North Carolina, for instance. It's an economic reality that the private programs, because of the amount of money, we're talking millions of dollars that go into these programs, it's an economic reality that you've got to have some sort of a return on them. And so on the one hand, you've got the university programs and the public programs, which have been great, and I hope will go forward because they can afford to experiment with things from the wild, for instance, and work out where this fits. 
Whereas a program like ours, that can be a um, quite a very expensive task. And so someone like Dr. Kim Hammer um, with her collection up in Oregon or the work of uh, Dr. Jim Ballington in North Carolina where they just went out into the wild. They found lots and lots of interesting vaccinium species that could one day bring in disease resistance to something. Or I know Professor Paul Irene at the moment is working on getting a blueberry with a really strong blue flesh and this sort of thing. These are things that come out of a public program and I think they're really good things. The private guys like ourselves, we've got to put bread and butter on the table for ourselves and quite a lot of workers. So we're faced with the issue of having to to be like we are and, and work with, in our case, we don't publicly release a variety just with a royalty like, say, Fall Creek do. We actually go into a country where someone wants to be our licensee in, in the US and Mexico family tree farms, and they pay us a royalty to use our genetics exclusively, and in their case, to exclusively use our genetics and not others. And that royalty helps to pay for our program to keep it going. We, we couldn't afford the sort of costs that are involved without having those royalties come in to keep the program going. Well, I'm really enjoying this conversation, Ridley, but we're going to take a quick break here for our marketing boost. We'll be right back to this conversation in a moment. But for now, here's USHBC NABC Vice President of Marketing and Communications, Jennifer Sparks. Thank you, Casey. Quick response code. What in the world is that? You'll recognize it more as QR code, a matrix barcode for storing and sharing information quickly and easily. More than a decade ago, QR codes had a hard time taking off because they required a special app and consumers were confused. Fast forward a year into the pandemic world we live in, and you've most likely seen them as the touch-free experience solution for restaurants in their offering of digital menus. It's so easy. Just open your smartphone camera, hold the device over the code, and a link pops up for easy access. Brands are using QR codes to cater to their audiences with interactive shoppable ads, images, videos, and landing pages on websites. Transportation services are using them for ticketing. You'll see QR codes on product packaging, point-of-purchase materials, in TV ads, and social media. The point is that scanning QR codes has become second nature for consumers of all ages, and USHBC is embracing this technology. Want to get your feet wet on using QR codes that lead consumers to blueberry health information, recipes and cooking tips, simple snack ideas, and other ways to grab a boost of blue? We've made it easy. Just go to ushbc.org slash QR codes, and you're on your way. This has been your Marketing Boost. Thank you for your partnership, as together we inspire the world to grab a boost of blue. Back to you, Casey. Thanks, Jenny. Now back to our episode today with Ridley Bell. You know, from an outside-in perspective, maybe you could give our listeners a sense of where we go from here as an industry. When you're starting tomorrow and thinking about the days ahead for the blueberry industry, what's your sense of where we take our our industry from here? Um, I thought I'd just spent the last hour, Casey, banging the drum about <laughs> crunch, about flavor, about uh, pickability, about eating experience. And so I think that's number one. But number two is that we have an amazing product, the health benefits. And, you know, just 
getting that information out from uh, your research there, you know, Dr. Eric Rim's research, I, I listen to him whenever I get a chance and, uh, you know, I soak it up because that's, a, that's another reason that when we get that message out to the community, people are more and more aware these days of their health. And, you know, I don't know what it's like in your town, but in our town there's now gymnasiums everywhere. There's pools, there's bike tracks, there's walking tracks. And, and it's really important because people are thinking more and more about longevity, about their health, about how am I going to keep my blood pressure down? How am I going to address all these things? So blueberries are unique. I, I can only congratulate the USHBC for the uh, effort that they've made, not just for American growers, but on behalf of all growers around the world. And we have a great debt to pay to uh, USHBC um, health research. It's, it's just fantastic. And my feeling is that that's the message that you guys have got to keep selling, you know, keep getting people like Oprah Winfrey or, or those sort of people saying, I eat blueberries for breakfast every day and look at me, you know. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's funny you say that because, you know, we, we in many respects have been living off the dividends of this health research in this global pandemic, but also in the middle of a pandemic, you know, again, more of a, a pop culture uh, icon where you have somebody like Dwayne Johnson or otherwise known as The Rock walking us through his diet and, and making people understand why, you know, somebody within his circle health dietitian is prescribing him blueberries to get ready for his next movie. Another good indicator of just how much it takes to uh, uh, get in front of the right people to help move people towards blueberries today. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think one point that neither of us has mentioned, and I know my daughter's very much into it, our company has a, a Facebook page and all the rest of it, but there's no doubting the power of social media now, no doubting the power of Facebook and getting those stories out and you know, getting it out there that you know, you're back in the, the supermarket and, and all the rest of it. And that's another driver that uh, other people know a lot more about than I do. But uh, I think that you guys are, are helping with that as well to get the message out through social media because I know so many people now, that's their only source of news. So when you get the message about, you know, grab a boost of blue out there, then that's great. Yeah, well, I would think so. And I just really appreciate the opportunity to spend this time with you and just kind of uh, hear from you directly about not just where it's been, but where it's going. So uh, Ridley, I can't wait till we get to get together again in person. And I, I look forward to the opportunity to see you there and appreciate all the time you've given us today on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Casey. I've had my first injection and uh, I'm waiting for the second one and then I'll be free to travel. And I've said to uh, Mike that I hope to be over in uh, Tampa, isn't it, in, um, in March next year. I, I love coming to the meetings and I am very mindful of the people like Dr. Mainland, Dr. Lyrene, Dr. Jim Hancock, all these people. Chad Finn was a great friend of ours and came to Australia a few times. We're sort of riding on the backs of all these people as well, you know, and it, it's been great for the Australian industry to have such great input from our American friends. So uh, so let me just thank you to you, to the industry. We're thankful for the input, and it's certainly been very 
instructive for us in Australia in, in what we do here. So thank you very much to you and, and to your industry in general. Well, we'll have you back. And uh, again, I appreciate this time and, and this opportunity to uh, introduce you to our audience and, uh, and appreciate that you're a, a listener already and look forward to uh, another episode in the future. Yeah, well, don't bring me back to do a crop report, all right? Because after listening to Andreas or, or others, I'd be so embarrassed that, you know, 300 million pounds and we're talking now 18,000 kilos. <laughs> I think our footprint around the world has not been so much in, in volumes of fruit, but rather in um, technical and genetic. So uh, but it's been a pleasure to be with you, Casey. It really has. All right, Ridley. Well, I appreciate you as well. Thanks for joining us. No problems. Okay. See ya. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation with Ridley. He has certainly had an impact on a very important area in the growth and development of what consumers are experiencing today and around the world. Blueberry genetics and the importance involved with the breeding process of quality varieties, which is a critical component of the future success of our industry going forward. Now, some of my key takeaways from this conversation was certainly about the way that Ridley believes flavor drives that consumer experience and how his understanding of that experience has evolved to include, you know, the crunch of the blueberry as being another important characteristic. And yet, you know, recognizes as well the importance of the challenges we're facing today in production and then how we need to be able to, you know, machine harvest that quality in the future. And I think that really drove home the point, which is that there's a lot of room left in the innovation for our industry, that the future of having all those characteristics come together in a way that makes for what consumers are enjoying over and over again, that consistency of the quality of the experience, hand harvest, machine harvest, but that there is a, a lot of effort underway to make sure that, you know, these things are the things of the future. And so I really appreciate just kind of hearing things from his perspective, certainly, you know, the business underway there in Australia and how that compares to the United States. I also want to acknowledge the attribution of the industry success uh, that he mentioned related to the USHBC. I appreciated his his deep appreciation for the health research work of our organization over the years that had him say that Australia has a, a great deal of gratitude for what USHBC has done in the area of health research and what an impact it's made across the globe in driving the category. So it's been a great show. I really appreciated having the chance to sit down with him and just kind of talk through what makes for a good blueberry and where he sees the future of our industry going. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on The Business of Blueberry.